0: What do you learn from it? I think one is to not be afraid to take risks. I think the states are a great place to experiment and say, what if we try something different?
1: Welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And we are proudly sponsored by Odyssey Advisors, the Government Finance Officers Association, Build America Mutual, and Muni Pro. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by my intrepid co-host, fiscal policy wonk, Californian Marylander, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome
2: back. Thanks, Justin. Uh, funny you should mention because I've, I've been holding off on talking about football until now because I'm very superstitious. <laughs> but while my fantasy season, fantasy football season was a complete bust <laughs> this <laughs> year, my Actual, not my actual football season, but real life football has been wonderful because I'm a I'm a 49ers fan and I I uh, I'm really getting into them this year. It's uh it's like it was when I was a kid. Now I have to go knock on wood and and do all the other superstitious things to make sure I just didn't jinx anything. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Indeed, they have played well and they they've generally been pretty strong in the playoffs. Uh, so maybe as long as everyone's little, healthy. <laughs> that's right, exactly. It's a big gift, big gift. But yeah, several people in my family are. Including my wife are Lions fans, and hmm. so they're they're getting used to what it means to have a team that, and it's all just it feels like playing with house money at, at this point. For <laughs> 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 so, if the Lions and the Niners meet in the playoffs, then we'll we'll see what happens. It, it could be a pretty interesting <laughs> matchup. Wonderful. Well, we are uh, continuing our conversations with state treasurers. Uh, these always, these have been a lot of fun. I'm glad we we've gotten to do as many of them this time, uh, inviting Kansas treasurer Stephen Johnson to join us. Lots of things we could talk about with Kansas, Liz, and uh, and certainly hope to get into with, with treasurer Johnson, most notably, I think for those of us who have been in the public money world for a while now, uh, what has been called by many the Kansas experiment, State mm-hmm. cut its income tax rate effectively down to to zero uh, roughly a decade ago. Got a lot of attention. Continues to get a lot of attention. Uh, quite controversial. Lots of differences of opinion on whether it worked, whether it didn't work. We hope to get into that with him. Lots of other things we could also talk about with with Kansas, particularly with just the nature of it as a as a state that we think of as a rural state, but in fact, much of the population is concentrated in just a handful of counties, um, and yet it still has a very role character in many ways, and that creates interesting infrastructure and other kinds of challenges. Uh, And again, all things that we hope to get into with with Treasurer Johnson. One of the things though, that when you look at the state treasurer's office in Kansas, so this has been a running theme when we've talked to other state treasurers, it's pretty clear that this particular treasurer's office is very much leaning into that role of coordinator in chief, helping to coordinate across state government in lots of different important policy areas, like college savings, like uh, infrastructure development, coordinating a lot of the federal money, lots of different areas where uh, given the fact that public money touches everything, state treasurer is involved in playing that kind of coordinator in chief role for situations where it doesn't naturally fall into some other part of state government. And in many cases, coordinating in an intergovernmental way, working with county treasurers, working with other parts of local government or nonprofits, or even the business community. Uh, so an interesting role, an interesting way that they go about doing that, at least you've certainly we have many stories over the years looking at the, the way that state treasurers can play that kind of coordinator role to take on some challenging policy areas. What comes to mind for you when you think of some of the more memorable or, uh, or, or more, I guess, interesting ways of thinking about that role?
2: Yeah, well, certainly, I think in in terms of the the education role that treasurers can play, uh, particularly when it comes to those areas of unclaimed property, um, financial like um, financial education, personal finance education, whether it's kids high schoolers or, or adults um that's those kinds of pieces i I see a lot of treasurers uh, reaching out with local you know their local partners whether it's other treasurers or local officials and I, and I think it's it speaks to the fact that I think those those things in particular the the areas that can be a little bit more sensitive it really helps when you have sort of like a local known representative and and I think that lesson actually um, it's interesting. In Kansas, as, as you mentioned, I mean, a lot of people live in this one area. I've been to Kansas. I haven't been to the area where people live. Um, <laughs> by happenstance, I, I happen to have gone to a wedding way out in Western Kansas, um, where not a lot of people live. And and I was thinking about that too, as you were talking. And it's very, I mean, there's a lot of flatland with n- nothing on it, you know, in between towns and, and people can be very very connected to each other within their small community, but otherwise disconnected from the rest of the state. And I think that's probably true of pretty much every every state with um with with a large rural area. But all that to say, it's 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 even that's even more, I guess speaks to why um having a, a local voice, a local partner when you're trying to reach out and and educate or or offer something uh, it's super, super important and, and I've seen that not, not just with treasurers of course, but with, um, with, with governments uh, reach as far down as into neighborhoods, you know reaching out to having a local nonprofit partner within a neighborhood be there, uh, be their voice instead of an unknown uh, representative from city hall. So that that concept really works.
1: Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Kansas Treasurer Stephen Johnson. Treasurer Johnson, thanks so much for giving us some time today.
0: Thank you, and great to get to be with you.
2: Yeah, welcome to the pod, Treasurer. Uh we'll, we're going to start off by asking you sort of the general question we like to ask all Treasurers, which is, how, how's it going in Kansas? What's the uh, quick overview of the state's financial position?
0: Well, I lucked out on the time to step into the treasurer's office because we've had good revenues, good flows, and uh, with the high interest rate environment, which is not necessarily good for everybody, but it's been nice if you had money to invest overnight. So those flows have been strong, maybe at record levels with total amounts that we have in, in reserve but that's, that's the key. So we're at a point where our ending balance is the highest that I have seen it since joining the legislature in 2011. And in addition to the ending balance, the legislature had established a rainy day fund or a budget stabilization fund, but there hadn't been room to fund it for many years. And now I would say we are fully funded and even at a point where we could suspend the automatic allocations. So that part has been good. Between those, uh, our ending balance and our budget stabilization fund, there's plenty of of revenue to fund the state for a, a period of time. Our revenue projection is remarkably consistent to the current expense levels. So those are in balance. The legislature has room to work with that ending balance and what they would choose to do. But right now, uh, those policies are well balanced. Economically, We had a good start to the year in terms of our gross state product, or however we want to refer to that. It had bounced back nicely through the first half of the year, waiting on some of the current numbers to get a better handle on where we are. Uh, I would say that our daily flows appear to have slowed just a bit. I don't know if it's timing uh, or, or something that we'll see at the end of the month that is a change, so we'll keep an eye on that.
1: So Treasurer, we've talked often on this podcast about the federal money that has made its way into state and local governments over the last couple of years. Uh, Kansas is a little bit unique, it seems, in that your office has taken a real central role in trying to coordinate getting that money out to the local level. Specifically, the the built Kansas Matching Fund and a lot of the other coordinating you're doing. I wonder if you could just tell us sort of what it, what that is. You know what you've been doing to sort of play that role of trying to coordinate and match those federal dollars, and then what have been the sort of challenges and the and the experience with that uh, that effort so far.
0: So uh, each state is different, certainly. And there are so many different pools of federal money. Um, So there are some that the treasurer's uh, office interacts with. There are some that are, are sent Direct to different entities. As we look at the total federal dollars, that's one of the reasons that we see good flows, and that we still have the turnover of those dollars in the economy that's driving the tax revenue. Uh, in Kansas, we're a little unique in what the legislature had done to involve the treasurer's office in the coordination, and it is really that it is pulling those players together. The key partner is our Department of Transportation, who looks at a lot of the infrastructure needs, so we rely on them heavily, and, and that. That then gets to the challenge in coordination is all of the players that are involved in making sure, okay, is everybody communicated with? Has everything been handled? Whether it's other agencies uh, that the governor has, the Department of Commerce is another key one to work with. But the, the central role is actually the legislature's and approval. And then, as you said, ours is the coordination of that and the execution of the legislature's direction. And then traditionally, it's not unusual for us to write the checks, right? That's our role is to send the money out where it goes. But the legislature had had written that so that they had uh, more direct oversight in the allocation of those funds. And it came then directly to our office to execute it and send the money where the application had come as those get approved and, and through the process.
2: Can you tell us a little bit more about the, the Build Kansas Matching Fund? What is that and how have how uh, local governments used that?
0: So great. The the Build Kansas Fund were some dollars that had been set aside for infrastructure projects. And in particular, they have focused on areas where they need some matching dollars to pull everything together and, and move through the process. And so the Build Kansas program has its own application process for communities and entities across the state. Uh, They come up with their need, their project that can can help and send that in, which is uh, coordinated again through the Department of Transportation and presented to the legislature to make that decision and the allocation of those dollars. So they allocated $50 million towards that. Um, To date, we have allocated uh, $11 million of those dollars dollars so they'll continue working through the the remaining majority of various projects across the state
1: any case studies or examples you can you can tell us about particular types of projects or what if nothing else like what parts of the state it's been making its way to
0: So it it crosses the state pretty well. Um, We have uh, from from west to east. Uh, On the east side of the state in Wyandotte County, there is a partnership that they've been working to have between uh, the Kansas City community on both the Kansas and Missouri side to replace a bridge that is a local bridge rather than a state bridge. So that infrastructure was one then that fell and has been applied to and approved for the project. So that would be the furthest east, literally crossing the eastern boundary Boundary. Um, a little further west, uh, closer to, to Lawrence, where you were, there were a couple of needs in the community of Ozaki. Uh, they had had some issues needing uh, backup power generation in some lift stations as uh, they dealt with um, uh, the, the public works of, of water, etc. And so their projects were approved to be able to, to meet those needs. Um, the city of Salina, not all the way west, only about halfway, had some improvements in the airport uh, to serve the community and the area there and, and air travel and that part of the infrastructure. So that kind of gives an overview of area and, and the types of things from air transportation, road transportation, and infrastructure, uh, which is the focus of the, of the projects.
2: I, I'm really interested to hear about this because Kansas's able program um, is considered a model for states um, in in how it helps the the differently able community address some of those barriers to to savings and to managing finances. Can you tell us a little bit about that that program for our listeners?
0: Certainly, and. Each of these programs is thanks to really talented individuals that identify the need, have a vision for how to work all the way through, and uh, and meet the need. So, lucky to have some people on my staff and some other really talented people in the state looking at how to pull things together. And what we saw, so first, um, not everyone may be familiar with the ABLE accounts, but the ABLE accounts were set up, I believe, in 2014 by legislation in the nation. And um, that allowed folks with a disability to save and be able to plan for their financial future. And that was a big change because previously everyone was only focused on the fact that if you had more than 2,000 assets, you could lose your Medicaid or SSI Mm -hmm. benefits those things that we depend on to get through. So this allowed for financial planning to meet a variety of needs, whether it was housing, education, um, even quality of life things could be paid for from the ABLE account. It earns uh, tax-free if it is used for those particular purposes, like the other 529 plans that are specific to education. So a tool to help plan for that. In Kansas and every state, we have... A long list of folks waiting to get services. We have 5,100 on our wait list in Kansas waiting for state services. Many of those people would qualify to use an Able account, but don't currently have one. And while it's not a solution for everyone, it is a tool that could help to plan to meet the needs for that community better than going without it. So, The Kansas Council for Developmental Disabilities, led by Sarah Hartweir, had the idea, let's get together. The Treasurer's Office helps people open accounts, but the council helps meet their needs and our the Kansas Department on Aging and Disability Services, or KDADS as we refer to it, actually has those ongoing relationships all the time. So how do we work together to identify those where this tool is just an obvious fit to be one other thing to help meet needs? And so we announced that partnership just uh, in just late November on the 29th and look forward to educating together folks to say, wow, could this be a tool that just helps until we're able to get to that point of being on those services?
1: Curious, Treasurer, tell us a little bit more about that. What form that that outreach is going to take? That's such an interesting collaboration between different parts of state government. Uh, Are you sort of sharing messaging? Are you... You know, how how is it that you're that you're teaming up to to get that word out? Because it is such a different parts of state government that do very different things.
0: Right. So, great point. So, the Kansas Council on Developmental Disabilities provided a grant to the treasurer's office so that we can actually travel across the state just to do this. So, we have a roadshow that will go from April to October and physically be in the communities, and then those entities will set up. Who needs to be with us? How do we get the message to the people in that area? How do we meet them where they are to be able to do it? Similarly, throughout the year, we'll be conducting webinars with them. And again, KDADS or the Kansas Council will say, here's a group, here's an individual that just needs somebody to explain how this works to them. And then we'll respond uh, by conducting that webinar or whatever it takes to meet that particular need.
1: So, in the last legislative session, uh, Kansas, like a lot of other states, passed you know its version of of legislation to uh, ensure that public funds are invested you know in ways that don't that don't really give preferential treatment or or discriminate against uh, companies based on ESG environmental social governance criteria. At the time that that legislation was being debated, you had supported it, and so this is this a topic we've talked about with several state treasurers and we talk about often on the on the public money pod more broadly. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about why you supported that legislation and from your vantage as treasurer, how does your fiduciary duty to the to taxpayers of Kansas fit into that into your view on that legislation?
0: Yeah. So so those fit directly together and As you look at investing, which is one of the things that we certainly study at Chicago, and as I finished my time there, uh, my first role out of grad school was building the mean variance optimization models on what was then modern portfolio theory in the early 1990s, and we could take it off the (laughs) mainframe to PCs. So um, I lived that uh, world and still enjoy it and employ it regularly, but in that, The market every day is coming up with our price and how efficient it is, we certainly could debate. But as we model, as we work to execute our fiduciary responsibility, which is to get the highest expected return for the risk taken, that is the role, in the model, I can't increase my expected return by adding constraints. Now, there are good reasons which I can add constraints for, but it does not increase return for the risk taken. I I can only work at a lower point uh, than the uh, unconstrained efficient frontier, which is also a world constraints are necessary, but we have to agree on what they are and we have to agree on how those affect uh, the constituent base that we are working with. And once you have that, then you can apply those constraints, but you don't start with a predetermined set if your fiduciary role is maximum return uh, for the risk taken.
2: So it sounds like what you're saying uh, is that any kind of limits, whether it's divestment or a a direction to invest, is at odds with your fiduciary duty as treasurer?
0: So in a divestment piece, again, that would be similar. And it it would Require something that says, We actively want to make this decision. We do not Mm -hmm. want to passively be hit by that decision. We actually want to decide what our constraints are. Because you're right, constraints are critical. At times, you'd wind up with way too much in international or venture capital or whatever. And you have to say, Am I a hundred percent certain of that assumption? And there are a few assumptions of which I'm a hundred percent certain. <laughs> but you you bake that certainty in with the degree to which you are willing to then apply constraints to whatever your investment solution is. And our point is we don't we don't accept a set that is there. We we have to make sure that we're taking those choices actively as opposed to passively.
1: Yeah, it's be an interesting story and certainly well grounded in the Chicago tradition. no no surprise there. I guess is there um, to follow up on that, is there is there a world you could see where there could be agreement on on what those constraints and assumptions ought to be? Does that have to come through the political process or is that something that could originate from somebody else's investment model or some other set of assumptions that everyone can agree on for whatever reason?
0: Yeah, so at this point it would come from the political model. Um, and that is the challenge which the board had to wrestle with. What is our responsibility, liability within this? And the legislation uh, just said, for better or worse, and it's interesting that it, it can cut both ways, right, uh, to say that we don't consider uh, based on the ESG principle alone. Risk and return? Absolutely. That is the, uh, something that the market is considering at all points in time, uh, but the policy then would go back to the legislature.
2: Have been other examples uh, aside from from the the ESG stuff where the legislature has has wanted to direct uh, investments.
0: Yes. So um, when we went back, the one that was in place when I first came to the legislature to an earlier mention was the Sudan divestiture. So that was one where a policy objective had been set on the pension directive, and. What became somewhat challenging was when there was a desire to unwind it. It was it was a little hard to do because they didn't want to send a message that things were okay. But it was really hard to jump through the hoops to say there were six caterpillar tractors found in the Sudan. So divestiture from. Caterpillar would be necessary. But we were in an index fund and unwinding the index fund because Caterpillar was in it. There were just a number of things which became more of a challenge to implement. And it was one of the things that then the legislature was aware of having gone through that to say, we, we want to make sure that we're very clear about what restrictions we do or don't put on.
2: So speaking of the legislature, uh, famously, uh, the legislature at the urging of, of then governor uh, Sam Brownback cut the income tax rate about a decade or so ago to an effective rate of, of zero. And that's, this was um, as what many people in our circles call the Kansas experiment. Ultimately, the legislature, as you know, Pulled back on that, so I guess kind of with that with that decade log lens. Now, can you tell us what you think about that? Did, did the experiment work, and are there are there any lessons that Kansans and other other states can take from that?
0: So so there are a lot, and you will get different perspectives as you talk to folks, and they look at did it work, did it not, and mm-hmm. the change was zero percent on um, sole proprietorships and, and small business was the part of that tax that went to zero. And the tax law became law through some fairly unique twists and turns where the plans that people had laid out to buy the rate down may have worked. um, But through the last minute conference committee processes uh, managed to get something on the table that was a little uh, further afield from that to go straight to zero. And that became law. Through that How do you then measure success? The point that was typically shared to show success was there was a meaningful increase in the number of businesses, in the number of LLCs in Kansas. By some numbers, the number actually doubled. So did it grow businesses? Perhaps. If it did, could that have had long-term impacts that were successful? Uh, Yes, it could. As we look at the same time, at that point in time, while our number of businesses increased the gross domestic product or the gross state product did not materially change so the tax foundation one outside entity who maybe didn't have a dog in the fight suggested that we change the nature of the income but not the overall income that perhaps i just said well i'm working for you but if i become an independent contractor is that a win for both of us and Did we change the nature of the income more than we increased production? And that was the Tax Foundation's suggestion. I would say through the time of 2017, the bill was passed in 2012. Uh, It was uh, then changed in 2017. Through that time, based on revenues received there, we did not see the impact of those businesses adding to the bottom line of revenues in other ways as was intended by that, that tax change. Has that been part of what has driven our revenue since that time? Perhaps. But it was a point where there, there were a lot of challenges in balancing the budget, wound up with the decision of saying, where do we have to come up with $590 million to make the budget balance in 2017? And this was that was part of the solution that was used to do that. What do you learn from it? I think one is to not be afraid to take risks. I think the states are a great place to experiment and say, what if we try something different? Hand in hand with that is always looking at, just as we talked about with the ESG topic, how do I always question and confirm my assumptions? Am I working on good data is my experiment producing the desired changes that I needed to see, so that our investment in that is actually creating those results, and keeping an open mind, not always going into that with a predetermined answer of what I'm looking for, because sometimes if what I'm looking for can be what I wind up seeing, um, but but questioning assumptions. So those are the two things. One is don't be afraid to take risks. It can be prudent, but Measure them carefully and and measure them as as clearly as you
2: can. That's an excellent point. I, I had forgotten about the fact that that there were there was a pay for uh, initially in that bill, um, and then through the negotiations that that kind of got stripped stripped down a lot, and and some of the assumptions were were changed based on based on some optim- more optimistic economic outlooks. And and your point about questioning assumptions makes me think of. Um, a lot of a lot of states now have have enacted temporary pa- tax tax cuts um in this surplus era that we were in and are not anymore <laughs> um and but a few have enacted permanent ones and it just makes me wonder what assumptions have lawmakers perhaps made that uh that are they're about to be tested
0: yes that is always a question and how do you vet what those might look like so as I look to Kansas's current situation, so we've got we're approaching three billion in our ending balance, and it's not uncommon to look at the next two years and say, "Well, how does that play out?" And look at all this room I have to cut taxes. In our case, I think a healthier way to approach it. Given that expenses and revenues currently match pretty well, if we applied a billion dollars of the surplus to our pension liability, which is our most expensive one, not that there aren't other liabilities that we could equally apply to, but that would safely reduce our ongoing revenue requirement by payments of 80 million a year. So if I took that billion and applied it to a liability, I believe I could reduce ongoing expenses by 80 million a year. I could then permanently reduce my tax liability or taxable uh, revenue by that 80 million. So and if I use two billion of it, I could do 160 million in tax cuts. Those numbers aren't quite as exciting to look at as what I might if I just looked at the ending balance, but I think is part of the process to saying what's a sustainable tax cut versus something that gets a lot of people excited at the current time.
1: We were talking treasurer a second ago about, savings. I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about college savings as well. You know, your office is in a a unique spot in that you do quite a bit to make information available about scholarships in addition to the traditional college savings plans that you and a lot of other treasurers have. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about some of your efforts there for uh, making scholarships available to aspiring college students.
0: Yes. So uh, several years ago, uh, the treasurer and some of the staff had figured out that, you know, planning for college is complicated. Uh, Planning for retirement is very complicated. But how do you approach that holistically where the treasurer's office uh, administers the 529 savings plan? And that's a tool, but it's certainly not the only tool. So how do you look at that? And the other thing that they found is scholarships are something that people understand pretty intuitively right out of the gate. And there are a few good search engines that give you a chance to build a profile and look for what scholarships might I qualify for and how do I maximize that part, the funding equation as I look to figure out what I want to do, how I best prepare for the future. So that has been a a useful tool as we look at those search engines to say, what do we do where we can apply for help? And it just helps to have that overall discussion as we say, how do you plan for the future? How do we save what we need? How do we look at what realistically we could plan on from scholarships? How do we look realistically at the type of education we're seeking, whether it's uh, trade school or grad school? We want to try to find the best way through that and be realistic about the return on our dollars for the education endeavor that's that's then then followed. And uh, so that was the the concept. We think it helps them do a more holistic plan. And then it also helps us in that there are a lot of people that get excited about talking about scholarships. And I would suggest perhaps more than get excited about talking about saving.
2: Uh, treasurer, we usually like to wrap up these interviews with uh, any stories that you would like to share about uh, about returning unclaimed property. We know that treasurer is probably one of the, the funnest things about your job, I imagine.
0: You know, it really is fun Um, discovering that. And again, a great staff who's dedicated to work through the claims and and help people get their money back and, and seeing people be reunited is, and sometimes surprised, is good. The best stories for me come from partnering with our county treasurers. And I was out in the far northwest county in Kansas, Cheyenne County, and was talking to the treasurer. And she said, you know, I know just about everybody in the county. So let's just look at that list and we'll help reach out. And if they're not here, et cetera, but uh, we're going to know which was exactly right. And we talked to the other county treasurers about that. And then if we go to some of our, our larger counties, they were good, uh, Sedgwick County, and using technology and putting it right in front of people as they came to uh, renew their tag. And so it's been really fun to partner with them and find. And, and we did have one case which was, was pretty large, that the county treasurer looked at several unclaimed parcels that one of their residents had. And we hadn't been able to reach him, which, isn't, uh, which is common. Uh, the addresses change and that's one of the reasons you can't. And other county officials helped us think, you know, how can we find where this person is? And they trued up where another property was paying uh, property tax on the one that we had. And we finally just went and knocked on the door. And we had a good discussion, and uh, they were a little surprised. I would say also more than a little skeptical of two strangers coming up suggesting mm-hmm. that they <laughs> have quite a bit of money for you. It sounds like <laughs> a scam. <laughs> okay. um, but thankfully, they trusted the county treasurer and uh, were able to follow up over a period of weeks, and we were able to pay out those dollars. And there were a lot of little twists and turns along the way that made it challenging, but even more exciting to see it all the way to fruition. So uh, that was a, a great opportunity to, to get to make a, a real difference on, on unclaimed property. So, And we look forward to other things that we're able to do. The county treasurers will probably be back in late January or February and we'll reevaluate what are some other things that we can do to try and uh, work through more and more of those and, and, and find ways to get money back in people's hands. It's interesting the things that are in safe deposit boxes. And uh, as those get returned to the state from valuable things to things that you do wonder why people would ever put in a safe <laughs> deposit. <on>. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll leave the latter at that. But, uh,
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> well, thanks so much, Kansas Treasurer Stephen Johnson, for joining us here on the Public Money Pod. We really appreciate all your insights and uh, thanks for giving us the time.
0: Thank you. Great to be with you both, and I'll look forward to staying in touch.
2: Thanks again to Treasurer Johnson for that for that discussion. It was really great having him on the podcast. I appreciated a lot of his the way he approaches things, and 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 his the level that he coordinates with with others in his state. That unclaimed property story was pretty cool. This this week for this week's uh, ripped from the headlines, I actually want to pull a press release from the National Association of uh, State Budget Officers, NASBO. Um, they just, as of today, came out with their uh, fall edition of the Fiscal Survey of the States. So I want to kind of just go over some of these top line figures and and get your read on them, Justin. So the, um, the report for anyone who might not be familiar, it's it, this is a, a um, twice a year report oh, that surveys state uh, spending and revenue. So uh, as of um, as of this fall, the enacted budgets for this current fiscal year, 2024, in the aggregate call for general fund spending of about one and a quarter trillion dollars, which is a six and a half percent increase over last year, and that that is after two straight years of of a lot of spending increases and in revenue growth. In fiscal 2023, which ended earlier this year, spending grew 11, over 11, almost 12%, for example. Previous to that, it was 16%. So we're spending is slowing, in other words, as is revenue. So revenue increased last year, last fiscal year in 2023. It inched up just under a percent. And and that's, again, as opposed to double-digit revenue growth the, the previous years. For fiscal 2024, which is the one we're in right now, states project an, a revenue decline of almost 2%. And again, this was, I think... Um, expected at this point. Um, Nobody thought that these really, really high revenue figures would last, but I think the uncertainty was where are they gonna land? And so that's, we're starting to see at least one answer, one year's worth of answers to, to to that question. A couple of other points, Rainy, rainy day funds are crazy high. That is not a quote from the press release, by the way. (laughs) That is just me saying it. (laughs) So uh, I think for what is it, 41 states have uh, increased the size of the rainy day fund in 2023. Uh, They now total and this is rainy day fund plus their uh, general fund ending balances by the end of fiscal 2022, so a little while ago now, rainy day funds represented almost 38% of general fund expenditures, which is really high. And and, and as NASBO noted, that is three and a half times what it was in, in 2020. And so that's indicate. I mean, I think we've seen headlines, we've talked about this, one of the things that states have done with their surplus revenue is put it in their rainy day funds A couple of other points. The report goes over uh, the the fact that 37 states adopted net tax cuts in, they call it decreases, I'm calling it tax cuts in fiscal 2024. And uh, I think the most popular was personal income tax cuts. There were some that did uh, a sales and use tax cut. And one last thing in terms of comparing the last fiscal year that just ended, that ended in uh, June of this year and the current fiscal year we're in now. So 2023 versus 2024. Last year is when we started to see uh, according to this report that that drop in personal income tax revenue states now report a, a in total a five a little over five percent drop in income tax revenue everything else was up so that's why states you know ended in general with um, still a, a, a revenue bump a revenue increase in that year but this year everything's coming down um interestingly the the one that's coming down percentage-wise the most although certainly not dollar wise is corporate income taxes states are now projecting an eight percent decrease in corporate Corporate income taxes, personal income taxes, and other revenue is going to be down a little over two percent. Um, interestingly, sales taxes uh, still up just a smidge by uh, a little over one one percent. So that's kind of what states, where states are at now. There's going to be another report that comes out in the spring that'll tell us. If all of this is still the case or not, but very kind of very broad overview. Uh, that was just the 50 state level uh, uh, take. But Justin, what are some of your your reactions to to this report?
1: Yeah, I'm so glad we get to talk about it. The you know, the the Nasmo survey is a little bit like the. I don't know, the Oscars or the Met Gala or whatever <laughs> it might be in, in state and local public money, it comes out at the same time every year. It gives you a good sense of of where things have been and where things are going. And it, it's one of the, the really great kind of time series that we have in the space to be able to, to look at things over time. Seeing this and, and hearing your summary of it, I think it's the words that come to mind for me are soft landing. Mm. There have been plenty of recent indications from the Fed and elsewhere that Probably through the worst of the actual and potential market disruptions that had everybody really concerned in the sort of back half of this year. We certainly saw that in the muni bond market, major outflows, just a really rough second half of the year. And yet, as we've talked about already on this podcast, the in the muni market at least, we're on track now to finish the year at a net positive relative to where we were in January of 2023. Um, so that's a good thing, but that's kind of recovering a lot of ground very quickly that was lost slowly but surely in sort of the second half of the year. And I think you see that reflected in some of these numbers from from the NASBO folks as well. There's plenty of caution, plenty of conservative revenue estimates, but I think the, the important part there is that we're also not seeing drastic projected spending increases. Yeah to contrast those gen, those those revenue decreases. And there have been years in the past when you looked at these data where that's exactly what it was. Yeah. Where we're looking ahead, you, you just, everybody was kind of bracing for a recession where there's gonna be a big downturn in state revenues and a big increase in spending on unemployment, Medicaid, all the things that we have to spend more on in states when we're in the middle of a recession. And there's some of that here, but it's very tempered. It again, sort of hinting at soft landing. And if that's the case, then that's a good thing. And that, that is, I think, states exercising a lot of caution. We're still not through the kind of COVID sense-making process. And in so many ways, and we've talked about this before, The employment levels for states and localities at the start of the pandemic had just gotten back to where they were before the Great Recession. I mean, it took a long, long time to get states back to where they were to recover from the recession just in time for, for the pandemic. So. I think the days of the sort of sorts of recessions we saw in like 2002 and mm. 1997 and some of those where it was states kind of being caught off guard, they had these great spending plans and then the revenues fell out and then you've got to make drastic cuts. I think that kind of cyclical thing that we saw for many, many years may come back. But right now everybody is just very sensible, very cautious. <laughs> Um, And it's been interesting to see how a lot of those plans for things like tax cuts um, have been scaled back, right? Mm -hmm. And and a lot of those spending increases have been scaled back. And there's a lot of caution there. Again, I think just recognizing that we're in a very different world now and that kind of uncertainty needs to be dealt with in a proactive way. I think that's what you see in these numbers. Thanks again to our season two sponsors, Build America Mutual, MuniPro, odyssey advisors and the government finance officers association the public money pod is a production of the center for municipal finance at the university of chicago's harris school of public policy where we are proudly produced by hannah burnick you can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on The Public Money Podcast.